the revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool as white as snow and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Do keep that passage open in front of you. Sometimes, sometimes people talk about being a Christian. As, as always, we're climbing a, a, a steep flight of stairs. And the trouble is, everyone else is coming down those stairs. And, and they're getting annoyed with us, and we're getting annoyed with them. And, and there's hustle and bustle and some bumps and some collisions and, and touch and frustrations. And, and at times we're tempted just to think, Maybe I should just blend in. Maybe, maybe I should turn around and go with everyone else. It would be easier. It would certainly be less hassle. Is it even worth going up these stairs anyway? Maybe at the moment it even feels like there are more and more people coming down the stairs. And, and maybe, is it just me or do the stairs feel like they're getting steeper and steeper? 
a bit harder to be a Christian than perhaps it used to be. In the mornings at the moment, we're thinking about what it means to be made in God's image. And we've been thinking of some of the ways that we're sticking out a bit more. But you consider what it means to be human. Why people, we say, have an innate value and a worth, a dignity, that comes from being made in the image of their creator. Are the stairs feeling a bit steeper? Are there more and more people coming down? Because it used to be that, broadly speaking, people were sympathetic to the Christian faith. At least to a private expression of it. Now, now some regard it as positively dangerous. And the crowds coming down the stairs feel more numerous and the stairs themselves feel steeper. And as John writes in Revelation, where we'll be for the next five weeks, he he writes as an ally to people finding it hard to live for Jesus. He writes as someone who knows what it means to be a minority, somebody even who knows what it means to be persecuted for his faith, perhaps more than we do really. And we'll see in weeks to come, he's he's found himself on the island of Patmos, a sort of detention centre. Do you see why in verse 9? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos was a, was a prison used by the Romans, a kind of ancient day Alcatraz. <coughs> a detention centre, think Guantanamo Bay. And he's there because of the gospel of Jesus. And so you see, John stands shoulder to shoulder with people who find it hard to make a stand for Jesus. To those who are suffering for him. The kind of people around the world today for whom this is not just theoretical, but it's, it's real, it's daily, it's painful. Thinking Christians in the Middle East or Nigeria or Vietnam or all kinds of places where they're in the minority and it's hard to live for him. And he stands with us as, I see it seems to get harder. When it feels like the steps are getting steeper and more and more people are coming down. And we're fearful and we're tempted to keep quiet. We're tempted to compromise. We're tempted to keep our mouths shut. Or maybe even to turn around and start going down the stairs with them. I have to say, personally, this book and these ideas are the tonic that I need as I read the news and see or hear of pastors in our country hauled into court for what it seems to me faithfully preaching God's word, perhaps sometimes not hugely sensitively, but still faithfully preaching God's word. It's great to know that John has been there and he writes for people like me and people like you. When we feel tempted to compromise and perhaps just quieten things down a bit, perhaps just pull out from that conversation, whereas in years gone by we may not have. It's interesting, as you look at the whole of Revelation, actually, this this idea of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus comes up again and again and again. You you get it in chapter 6. John sees souls who have been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. You get it in chapter 12, where Satan, as a dragon, enraged at the woman Eve, went off to wage war against her offspring. Why? Because they're people who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Chapter 20 will meet people beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and the word of God. 
And so as John writes, he stands together with God's people from down the ages who have held fast to the truth of God's word, to the gospel of Jesus. But maybe you're saying, hang on, Revelation's just a bit weird. I've flicked through it before and and I'm just confused by some of the ideas, how are we meant to take it seriously, how are we meant to understand it, how do we get to grips with the strange language and the pictures and the metaphors, we had some of them with golden lampstands and stars and swords in people's mouths and what's going on? I read a story a little while ago of a um, University Christian Union um, student giving out New Testaments on campus and he gives this um, New Testament to this guy and then bumps into him a week later and says, have you read it? Did, did you like it? He said, well, yeah, I have read it. And it was all right. It was a bit slow going at the start. The first four books just seemed to repeat themselves a lot. But then the bit at the end, the science fiction bit, that was glorious. I enjoyed that. And maybe we're thinking, how do we understand Revelation? It, it is weird. What does it mean? I want to just give us a couple of brief thoughts tonight that will set things up for the next few weeks. And as to how we try and understand um, this book as a whole, but particularly chapter 1, because that's where we're going to be focusing for now. The first thing I want to say is that God, that the writer is writing in a way that, that we're meant to understand. It's worth saying that. He's not trying to confuse us. He's not trying to make it muddy or obscure. But he is writing in a way that we're meant to understand. And yet he does use so much symbolism. So, as you go through, you'll see brides like cities and lions like lambs and dragons and pictures and ideas and lampstands and swords in mounds. And Why does he do it this way? Why does he write in that kind of language? Because it's confusing for us. Two thoughts. I think one is to expand our minds. One is just to stretch us in our understanding, our, our finite understanding. So one writer says this, one of the reasons why God uses so much symbolism is because we are so dead to him, so blind, so unable to understand. So he, he's seeking to stretch us to show us how amazing he is, to create categories on axes that shouldn't meet. He's making word pictures for us that are not supposed to be drawn. And pictures so powerful, though, that our minds have to try and balance them and work out what's going on and why. And we say, well... You can stretch me, but I still don't really get the lambs and lions and brides and cities and dragons. Or even have a look at verse 12 to 14 from this um, chapter 1. When you see you've got seven golden lampstands and the lampstands, so someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. What's, what's going on? Do we just import our own ideas into the text? Do we give meaning to the text? Is, is my idea as good as your idea and we just make it say what we want it to say? I don't think so. So firstly he's trying to stretch us. The second one is we need to understand where revelation comes in terms of the Bible and in terms of revelation from God. So imagine with me, you're in Blackwell's in town there on Friday. Imagine you're, you're stood downstairs in Blackwell's or in a bookshop and you pick up the latest best-selling novel. You've never heard of it. You don't know what it's about. But, well, people are buying it. It must be good. And you turn to the last page. And you read the last page of the book. 
Do you understand what's going on? Do you understand the characters? Do you understand the story? Can you expect to understand what's going on? Well, probably not. Unless you read the blurb at the start and make a few guesses. But probably not. Well, so it is when we read Revelation. There's a sense in which you need to read the rest of the book before you get to the last bit. Before you know what's going on on the final page. I think Revelation is the culmination, the consummation of all that's gone before. To grasp the images, to understand what's happening, we need to have read the Bible and understand those images. So we we know what lions mean, or cities mean, or brides mean, or dragons, or swords even. I think that's especially why we can struggle when we read Revelation. Because if we're honest, we don't know our Bibles that well. We've not done the work. Let me just give you an example of this. Um, I don't want to steal too much thunder from perhaps two or three sermons down the line, but let's have a look down at verse 12 to 14 again. Because you get this one, like the Son of Man walking among the lampstands, and the, the imagery there, this Son of Man imagery, some of you will probably know is a kind of Daniel 7 type imagery. In Daniel 7 you get one like a Son of Man, a person approaches God and was given all authority. Daniel writes this, he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. You get that back in 7 as well, so it's picking up those ideas, verse 7 of Revelation 1. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never end. But the striking thing in Revelation is that he's got white hair. And why is that striking? Because in Daniel, the white hair belongs to the Ancient of Days. The white hair belongs to to God the Father. Here in Revelation, it's the Son of Man who has white hair. And that's not a mistake, that's not a a muck-up on the copying. That's that's a deliberate muddling. Because you're kind of asking, who is this son of man who's going to have an everlasting dominion and a kingdom that's going to go on forever? Well, suddenly we see he is divine, is what John is telling us. That's why he has white hair, because he's meshing the two together. We see the identity of the son of man as being God. So in a sense it is hard work. And we need to read our Bibles and know our Bibles and read things carefully and we see what he's saying to us, but it can seem foreign and alien at times for us. But I think there's a sense in which they're understandable and profoundly practical. For for I think what God is doing is wanting to prepare his people for persecution. He's wanting to help his people keep going. And it seems obvious to say it, but the kind of key thing I would love you to take away from tonight is that ours is a God who speaks. Revelation is something of the the air raid klaxon, warning them of what's to come. It's the parents shouting to the child, get out of the road, there's a lorry coming. The certainty of the future. So prepare now and take your precautions and get ready. How does he prepare us for that? How does he prepare God's people for that? Well, he reveals what's really going on. That's why it's called Revelation. He speaks. Look down at verses 1 and 2 and you see this this chain of communication 
because ours is a God who speaks. So do you see the chain? You get it from, from God the Father to Jesus, from Jesus to the angel, from the angel to his servant John, from John who writes it down to those who read it aloud, from those who read it aloud to those who obey. So there's this chain of communication. And what is the message that he's passing on to them? What is, what is our speaking God saying? Well, as I say, this is the key word in verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ. It, it's, it's the fact that God reveals. It's the word that means God uncovers. He uncovers something that we couldn't otherwise see or Something that we couldn't otherwise know unless he's told us. And we can't see what is going on behind the scenes, behind this world, unless he tells us. As you read Revelation, God shows us reality. He shows us the reality of the spiritual battle going on. He he shows us what God is doing. He shows us what Satan is doing. He will show us that God wins. The problem here is that everything feels so tangible and so real. And like it's all that matters and, and like it's all that there is, you, your world is screaming out to you, take me seriously, take me seriously, invest here, this is what's important. This is truth, says the world. And You wake up tomorrow morning, you go through your day, you go through your week. And isn't it possible just to wander through life as if we're sleepwalking, barely giving God a thought, barely seeing the reality of what's happening. The spiritual battles. And so what God does in Revelation is he pulls back the curtain for us. He uncovers. He reveals. And he shows us what's really going on. What does he show us? Verse 2, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I think that is shorthand for Revelation itself here. The whole of the book. All that John will write. He shows us reality. He tells us that he wins. One question that you might be asking, a good question to be asking is, what about the specifics of the situation that John is writing into? So, have a look again at verse 1 and at verse 3. And you see there, he seems to be speaking of something quite specific. So the revelation from Jesus Christ, the uncovering, the unveiling from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Or verse 3, blessed are those who hear it, take it to heart, take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Something is coming. John's writing for a reason. And yet, this was written a couple of millennia ago. Has it already come? The time is near, says John, to his initial readers in their context. Has that time already gone from where we are in our context? What is it that's coming? When is it coming? Well, here's our second bit of foundational thinking. Hopefully, again, will help us understand Revelation, hopefully for this series, but maybe in the future as well, if you read it, or if we continue past chapter 1 in weeks and months to come. Um, just to simplify it down, there are basically four different, uh, simplified, four different groups of people or four different ways of reading Revelation. This is the science bit, um, but try and stick with me if you can. Imagine four different glasses that we can wear um, as we read Revelation. The first one is the preterist. 
which basically says the majority of it, particularly chapters 4 through 20, has all happened in the past. This is basically a book about something that has already happened. And they would say most of these things were done at AD 70 when the Romans came and sacked Jerusalem. It's a very historically specific context. Okay, so that's one way of reading Revelation. The preterist. Lots of it is about AD 70. Lots of it's already happened. The second one is the historicist. You can probably tell from the name. It's similar to the preterist in that it's looking back in terms of history, but it's not just AD 70. It's what's happened over the last 2,000 years or so particularly. And people essentially use it to decode history. They read Revelation and they understand kind of what's gone on in the world or what's going on in church history and things that have happened, they say, could have been predicted by Revelation. Different superpowers, perhaps, who have risen and fallen or or the, the rise of Islam or the Reformation or those kinds of things, whatever it might be. A historicist would say, wow, look at Revelation, you see. God told us this was going to happen. So it's almost kind of Nostradamus-style stuff. People read it prophetically. Third one is a futurist, which is similar to the historicist, but it's rather not so much stuff that's happened in the past, it's more stuff that's still to happen, or even stuff that's happening now. It's the kind of, ah, look at Revelation chapter 12, it's the dragon, it's Barack Obama, obviously. It's that kind of stuff. So they read Revelation, and, and they see it as stuff that's going to come up. Those sorts of things, quite specific details. And the final pair of glasses is the idealist. And they say, well, it's not so much about specifics, it's more about general stuff. It's not so much particular events, but it's the kind of events that Christians are always going through, whatever time of history. It's patterns, it's general, it's broad. And you say, how do I read it? I think that's a good question. Um, I think there's a sense in which I want to be able to allow for overlap. I think there's probably truth in actually in all of them. It just depends on your emphasis. But I think particularly one and four would be where I would be. Clearly, it must be a specific situation. There's a specific set of circumstances. There are real churches that Jesus has a message for. There are real people full of real challenges, real issues, real encouragements. We've already met them. The seven churches in the province of Asia, verse 4. We'll see them particularly in chapters 2 and 3. Specific places, specific people, specific situations. There must be a sense in which this is historically specific, rooted. I think there are some pretty good arguments that AD 70 plays quite a big part as the Romans come and sack Jerusalem. But I think it's more than simply rooted in the first century. There must be a sense in which there are patterns and general things, principles for the way God works in every age. I think the fact that there are seven churches is deliberate. Some of you might know seven being a number of completeness, of perfection. It's no accident that John writes to seven. I take it in writing to seven, he's writing to all the churches. Not just there and then, but here and now. He's writing to all of God's people in different church contexts. It's general and it's broad. And if you read Revelation 2 and 3, you will see that two of them are pretty dead. Two of them are needing to revitalise and refocus, a bit of a kick up the backside, and then three are doing okay, which is again a fairly good general communication to churches. 
or perhaps the way they speak of how God's people are persecuted, but Jesus standing with them, or, or speaking of the battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And then, of course, the final victory at the end as well. Broad principles to encourage and to keep God's people persevering. So, so I want to slightly have my cake and eat it, but in a sense, as you read Revelation, I think it's a bit like any other bit of the Bible. It's a book written for a specific time, for a specific people in specific circumstances. We need to understand what it meant for them, but in the way that the Lord does, that incredible way, he speaks to them, but through them, his living word, he speaks to us in our situation. And the kind of things that we're going through. His word is specific and it's timeless. But as we finish, and it has been deliberately introduced, you'll need to come back next week. What are we to do with Revelation? What are we to do with chapter 1? What is it for this coming week that we take away? Have a look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Don't, don't miss the promise of us being blessed by God. How? Why do you see it's not just a theoretical book of ideas of, of things to study, of a book for us to kind of get to grips with academically, to fill our mind with information, which of course we should do that. But you see in verse 3, the second bless there, it says you hear it and take to heart what is written in it. This is not simply the abstract. It's not even simply just listening to it, but it's profoundly practical. It's Remember James 1 verse 22, the little verse, do nothing out of, uh, no, do not really listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. But do what it says. So as we go through Revelation this coming month or so, we're to be those who don't simply listen and deceive ourselves, but who, who take it to heart. Who, who live it. And what is it the word to take to heart? Well, when you feel like you're the only one going upstairs. And you feel like there are more and more people pushing against you and, and wanting you to turn around and go with them or you'll feel like the steps are getting steeper and steeper and steeper. And you're saying, is it really worth it? Really? Can't we just wave the white flag of surrender and maybe just turn around? Are we sure God is real? Are we sure that we're on the right side? Maybe we can just tone it down a bit and just compromise. Well, the Lord sends a message to people like us via Jesus, via the angel, via John, via those who read it aloud. And he says, it's worth it. Yes. Yes, I know. Yes, I'm with you. Keep going. Because I win. And I know that you feel like a minority, and I know that there are lots of people coming down the stairs, bustling you and making you feel on your own. But let me just peel back the curtain. Let me reveal, let me unveil. 
and show you what's happening. Let me show you the reality of the spiritual battle that you're in. Let me show you that I win, says the Lord. And so when you feel like it's not worth it, and when you feel like turning around and going down the stairs with everyone else, I know that I will come soon. I know that I do win. 